0: Ten Minute Talks, a podcast in which the world's leading professors explain the latest thinking in the humanities and social sciences in just ten minutes. My name is Tia Donora and I'm a fellow of the British Academy, which is the UK's national body for the humanities and the social sciences. And this ten minute talk is about music and well-being. At Exeter, I'm part of the SOC Arts Research Group, and a lot of my research has been in collaboration with music therapist, Professor Gary Ansdell. Gary and I conducted a 10-year longitudinal study of music and mental health, looking at community music therapy. And more recently, we're working with music therapists in Bergen, Norway, at the Grieg Academy of Music. With our Norwegian partners, we're examining how and why people care for music in scenes of late and end of life in hospices and care homes in Norway and the UK. I'm also affiliated with the ESRC March Network for Mental Health, and I've got a really long standing interest in music's role and function in everyday life. In this work, I've been interested in how music is part of social ecology. And of course, thinking about music ecologically reminds us that we are by no means the only species to be doing things with organized sound. Um, I'm recording this talk in the springtime, and lately I've been hearing a lot of birdsong. We know that birds sing for functional reasons, for example, to warn of danger or herald the daylight hours, and as part of ritual interaction chains linked to things like display and courtship. So for birds, acoustical activity is part of how action gets coordinated, and birdsong is a medium for conducting behavior in concert. Some ornithologists have suggested that birds may also sing for the sheer joy of singing and because they are so very well equipped for singing and therefore that bird song mixes functionality and aesthetics. In other words, birds may not be so different from us humans, musically speaking, and vice versa. When we humans engage with music, we're exercising our communicative musicality. In other words, our intrinsic capacity for producing and sharing organized sound through parameters like timbre, tempo, pulse, and melody. And we get great satisfaction from exercising this capacity, whether that's through singing, in a choir or in the shower or simply enjoying the sound of music made by others the key thing either way is that we're contributing our sounds and our noises to the atmosphere and enhancing the potential habitability of that atmosphere This communicative dimension can take on heightened salience in situations where people can no longer use language or can't use language. And in our research, we're seeing just how important music can be to people in extremis, sometimes even a micro detail, uh, a tapping toe or a gesture like uh, a pointing finger or tapping a nose, can have huge significance for people. And these micro-musical moments can have effects that reverberate, social, psychologically speaking, well after the real-time engagement with music is finished. So, for example, shared music can change how we perceive ourselves and others, and it can open up new ways of relating. It can draw our attention away from things that might otherwise prompt us to notice differences between people and to believe that these differences are important. Things like old and young or able and disabled. And it can actually create situations where for all practical purposes those differences are no longer relevant or at least not relevant for a while. Music fosters meaning and connection, and coherence, and all of these things, of course, enhance our entwined sense of physical and mental well-being. A growing body of research and a recent WHO scoping review on arts, health, and well-being has suggested that music helps and in ways that emphasize mind-body interactions. For example, engaging with music can prompt the release of the body's natural opioid compounds, the bonding hormone oxytocin, and the so-called happiness hormones such as serotonin. And in 2011, the British Journal of Psychiatry published an editorial about music and depression with the subtitle, It Seems to Work, But How? Obviously, there's lots of answers to that question. And in the work that we're doing, our answer is that music seems to work for two interrelated reasons. In other words, reasons that operate in tandem or together to activate music's powers for well-being. The first reason is that music's properties afford or offer many resources that are conducive to what wellness means and what wellness entails, and I've talked about a few of these already. The second reason is that music helps because of the resourceful ways that we engage with it to harness its health-promoting properties. Many of us regularly act as music therapists to ourselves, knowing what musically speaking we really need, and in a sense, musically self-prescribing. We may not be fully aware of what we're doing, but we are using music and music technologies in highly crafted ways curating what we choose to hear or play, and organizing our attention in really quite precise ways, sharing our favorite music with others, talking about music, and so forth. Across time and across cultures, the degree to which the consciousness of these lay practices and lay forms of expertise is recognized and integrated into daily life has varied, and it's varied in really interesting ways and for very interesting reasons. It wouldn't be quite accurate to say that some forms of musical engagement, say, singing in a choir versus listening with headphones, are more or less social than others. That misses how all forms of musical engagement are socially oriented. Many of the participants in our projects have spoken to us of music as a kind of companion or friend, and of course we know that listening to familiar music can prompt memories of people we know or people we have known, and it can prompt memories of key social life events, things to do with love and loss and joy and sorrow. And in this respect, music can facilitate cathartic processes. Music can also offer a kind of virtual haven or respite or asylum, and we can go into music when we feel in need of things like consolation. That said, some music therapists have cautioned that we need to take great care how and how much we listen to and engage with music because sometimes music can work against us. It can keep us fixed in negative patterns and associations and behaviours. So how we engage with music can alter our sense of ourselves, it can alter our relations to others, it can alter our moods and our motivations and our energy levels in and over time. And this means that engaging with music can change who we are and how we feel moment to moment. Music can reposition us in time and music can reposition us in imagined space. And to the extent that it can do these things, music can also alter what we believe we're capable of and therefore what we might really be capable of doing in actual social situations. So music offers opportunities for action and music empowers. It can empower us as individuals when we feel a bit of a boost after listening or playing, and it can empower us collectively. It can galvanize groups to act and to feel the need to take action. And I think this is really the final and key point, and it's one that a growing number of researchers in the area of health humanities are increasingly recognizing, namely that it is empowerment that lies at the very heart of what it means, holistically speaking, to be well. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.